You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Miriam Brand, and this is my friend Melissa. Hi, everybody. And uh, I am back. I apologize for the long wait. I know it's been a while. Uh, Melissa was writing a novel for National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, and then I got sick. So, <laughs> but but I am feeling better and I'm good to go. And we are going to continue where we where we left off, namely talking about different concepts of sin as we find them in biblical thought and then carrying them through into the Second Temple period and sometimes even into the Rabbinic period. And in the last talk, I mentioned some of the different topics, like I skipped around among some of the different topics that we were going to delve into a little more. And I talked about ideas like sin as burden, which is an idea that we have more in the Hebrew Bible before the Second Temple period. But today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about collective punishment, ideas about collective punishment that we have in the Hebrew Bible, I'm going to be talking about two different types of collective punishment. We're going to be talking about divine collective punishment, when God punishes an entire population together. And we're also going to be talking about human collective punishment in the Hebrew Bible, namely where humans carry out some kind of collective punishment against their fellow humans. And what's interesting here, and I'm going to contrast it later, we're going to, in a later episode, talk about intergenerational punishment, and I've mentioned this before, the idea that in the Hebrew Bible, in the, particularly in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, but not only, also in, in books like Kings, there's an idea that children are punished for their parents' sins, and that's not a bad thing. In other words, this is how justice is finally carried out. I will discuss that a little bit more in a later episode, and the idea that this is okay, that this is good, we see in certain books of the Hebrew Bible and then in other books, particularly in books that begin the exile. In other words, the books that are at the very end of the first temple period, we're talking about Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, and Cheskel, Ezekiel. Both of those prophets, they talk about that it's not a good, it's not a good thing that people are saying, you know, our parents, our, our previous generation said we're being punished for it. And that's a bad thing. And Yechezkel, Ezekiel himself says that no longer holds. That's no longer the way things are. We're going to talk about why that is, why Yechezkel would say that and why there's this shift in perception, possibly. We're going to talk about that in a different episode. But what's interesting about collective punishment is as opposed to intergenerational punishment, where you have books of the Bible where this is absolutely a good thing, this is justice. Why is it justice? Part of the reason why it's justice is because if you say that sin is real and sin is something that does real damage and there must be a punishment, then God stretching out the punishment over multiple generations means he doesn't wipe out a single generation, thereby wiping out everyone. Okay, so that would be a reason to stretch it out over generations. But then we have the idea of collective punishment. The idea of collective punishment is interesting because from the get-go, this is considered unjust. This is considered not right. I see a question in your eyes, Melissa. No? Coming later. You're coming later? Okay. So the classic example, of course, for this is when, when Avram, when Abram argues with God, when God's about to destroy Stone, son. Okay, so let's actually read that inside. So I'm going to read now from Breshit 
Yudchelchav, that's Genesis 18.20. And what we're going to see is just how bad collective punishment is from a moral standpoint. And this is the approach that's being presented to us, right, as the audience of this passage, right? So we have this dialogue between Avram and Avram and God, and it's interesting, excuse me, Avraham, he already has the extra hay in his name, he's Avraham, and he's going to argue with God. So on the one hand, it's very interesting that he thinks he can argue with God. That's that's an interesting approach to what is a person's role vis-a-vis the, the divine, in other words, can someone, what is one's role when facing God? Does one simply accept or does one argue? All right. And in this passage, certainly Avraham argues. It's interesting. There's a, I, I was just the other, the other night teaching a passage in Yecheskel and Ezekiel, which seems to imply that the role of the prophet is in a way to stand against God when God's about to punish his people. You know, to kind of, to stand the breach and say, wait, 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 don't punish them, right? Which is interesting. But here we have Avram arguing something much more basic, not just, oh, don't punish them, but it would be morally wrong to take out an entire city if there are some good people there. And of course, this also begs the question, well, if God does it, can it be morally wrong? And the answer seems to be yes. The answer seems to be not necessarily that God, if God does it, it can still be morally wrong. It's because it's morally wrong, God won't do it, right? But there is some kind of morality that exists, right? Of course, this is a major philosophical argument. Now, let's say a major philosophical argument for religious thinkers, right? Does God define morality or is there morality separate, as it were, from God? And that's a whole other question, which we're not delving into here, but it would be wrong of me not to mention it when it, it's so clearly uh, reflected in the passage. So let's, with, with no further ado, let us read. So what happens? God is, he hears the cry of Sodom Stone, the cry essentially of all the, the noise of all the city. And he, he's going to say, well, I, I have to tell Avram what I'm going to do, right? So let's actually start from, again, Yudchet Chaf. 1820, and God said, Right? The cry, and we're, we're, it's implying, I hear, right? The cry of because it's great, there's sin because it's very heavy. Remember this idea also, sin is a burden. I will go now and I will see. Did they actually do as I could understand from the cry that I'm hearing? And if they did, they're going to be destroyed. And if not, I'll know. Now, this is also curious. Doesn't God know? Now, of course, there are some people who interpret the, certainly the Pentateuch or certainly, and certainly Genesis. Some, there are people who say, well, God in the Bible is not omniscient. In other words, you, you're going to hear, if you speak to biblical scholars and you say this, they might say, well, just because God is powerful, or even if God is all-powerful, it doesn't mean he's omniscient, and they'll say the God of the Hebrew Bible isn't omniscient. The fact is, this passage is not talking about whether he knows or not, okay? That's not what this passage is about, omniscience or not, okay? It's not talking about his omniscience. It's talking about what you do when you're about to deliver collective punishment, 
And we know that that's what it's talking about, I should say. We know. I, I think this is what it's talking about because we see the same sort of thing happening when humans are called upon to deliver human collective punishment. You must go and investigate. You cannot just say, oh, what I hear is true. You can't just say that. You have to say, I must investigate. Even God, or especially God, God as exemplar, God as our, as the example, has to himself go and see. He says, wait a second. Well, this is what I'm hearing. I hear this horrible cry from horrible sinning. Is it really true? I'll go down and check, right? That's what you must do. And we're going to see that a little bit later when we look at certain, we're going to see where humans do it and where humans don't do it with tragic, tragic consequences, okay? So we're going to see that in just a little bit. So, but the idea is, even when a collective punishment is called for, you must investigate and see if, in fact, it is really called for. So he goes down, right? So he's so the idea is that he he has to go down and, in fact, investigate, right? And we have this this whole story is kind of interjected with the men slash angels who come to Avraham to give him the news of his son, and then they also go. They also go and, and then they, later they're going to go and save Lot, right? So in the middle of this, God then, they, they go and God visits Abraham, right? And he says, and it's, it's it kind of, it's interjected in a weird way, but I'm not going to go into that right now. And so the men slash angels go away. And he's already told Abraham he's going to do this. And Abraham says, are you actually going to destroy a righteous person or an innocent person. Rather, tzaddik in this, in the earlier books of the Hebrew Bible is an innocent person, not a righteous person. Someone who would be found innocent in a court of law. Okay. It, it could be both, but it, that's what seems to be. Would you destroy an innocent person with a wicked person? Okay. Are you actually going to destroy everyone in stone? Maybe there are 50 innocent people in the city. Will you destroy it and not carry? It was like carry, carry, forgive, right? Forgive the place. But the reason is carrying is forgiving is again you're going to lift the sin off the place. Or won't you forgive the place for those fifty righteous or innocent people that are within it? Right? God forbid. Right? I'm paraphrasing. Right? But it would be a terrible thing for you to do this. Right? Lehamit tzaddik and rasha to kill an innocent person with a wicked person. Vahayacha chasadik karasha is an innocent person like a wicked person? Chalilalecha hashofed kol haaretz lo yasemishbat. It would be terrible for you. The judge of all the land won't do justice. That's an amazing line. It's an amazing line to say to God. It's a teachable moment, not for God, but for us. Right? That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a teachable moment for the audience, right? For us, right? When we're saying there's an idea that one must do justice. It is not justice to kill the innocent with the wicked. Won't God? How can God not do justice? And what happens if you don't know if somebody's innocent or not? Well, this, so, this is the whole so issue. Yes, exactly. That- God, the, there is an idea here that God, in fact, knows who's innocent and who's guilty. And that's different from what's going to be a problem for humans. And we're going to see it later. Okay. So God, in fact, the assumption is that God knows who's innocent. Right. And that's why Abraham could just go to him and say, what if there are 50 innocent people? 
And God's like, okay, I'll save them for 50 innocent people. And then he can keep going down, right? So Abram keeps going down the line, right? He goes from 50 and he says, he's being super careful. He's like, I'm, I'm dust and ashes, you know, don't, but, but maybe there won't be 50. Well, we miss, they'll be missing five. Out of 50, five will be missing. It's, it's a great way to go. Like, you know, he doesn't say 45. He's like, let's say there's 50, except not five of them, right? <laughs> Would that be enough, right? So you've got 45. Is that going to be, a, is, are you going to destroy? This is, I, 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 I'm so great in this passage. I'm reading now from, from verse 28 from, from Chavchet. And he says, would you destroy the entire city for five people? You understand? Like, if it wasn't 50, you said you saved it for 50. So let's say it's 45. Are you going to destroy the whole city for five people? That, that, this is the way you negotiate, right? So and he says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to. And God's like, yeah, I'm not going to destroy it for 45 people. He's like, don't, yeah, I know the five game. It's cute. I'm not going to destroy it for 45 people. 45 people will save it, right? And he kept on saying, he says, what if you find 40? And God says, 40 is cool. Not going to destroy it if there are forty, if there are forty righteous or innocent people. And he says, uh, "Please don't be angry. What if there are 30? And God's like, "It's cool, right?" And then he says, uh, "Maybe there are twenty, and you won't." And, he, and God says, "I won't destroy it if there are twenty, right?" And he says, "What if there are ten? And God says, "I won't destroy it if there are ten. If there are ten. Righteous slash innocent people in the city, I will not destroy the city. Okay. What's interesting here is that, first of all, Avram stops there, right? Avram doesn't even consider the idea that God would save a city for one person, right? A group of people, if you've got 10 righteous people, that should be enough for God not to destroy the innocent with the wicked. If you're just one guy and you're caught in the crossfire, hey, that's life. Yeah, that's what seems to be the case. What's interesting, and this was pointed out to me by um, a professor of mine, Mark Smith, who is one of the greatest professorial mensch, mention. He's a mensch. He is a real mensch. And he, he said to me something here. But isn't that the point, he says, isn't the point that a human can't imagine in a situation where collective punishment is coming to a city, a human person can't imagine saving less than 10 people because there's just no way. And because remember here, what's Avram's assumption? Avram's assumption is that there's no way to save the righteous people or the innocent people if the entire city is destroyed. And that's a very important point. It's a very important point that in Avram's world worldview, and in fact, in general, I think in the ancient worldview, and I think this is a big part of what's driving a a belief in an acceptance of collective punishment, even while it's considered morally wrong. Why is the, does the world work this way, even if it's morally wrong? Is because, in fact, the world works this way. In other words, in the ancient world, if a city is destroyed, everyone's destroyed. If you have something bad coming to a city, everyone's going to die. You don't move around. You know, these days, I can live in L.A., and then I don't like L.A., and I move to Berkeley, right? In the old days, that people were not very, especially especially in the ancient Near East, before you had real empires, before you had the Syrian Empire, the people weren't moving around a lot. I mean, they, there were people who were nomads. There were people who moved around. But in general, your fate was your city's fate. You were in the city. And if you're a good guy, but everyone else is awful, and there's something bad on the way, you're going to suffer, right? There's, there isn't this idea that, some people will be saved and then the city will be destroyed. There's this idea in this dialogue, I'm talking about the dialogue now, in the dialogue between Avram and God, there's this idea that the fate 
of the city is the fate of the city, period. It's either destroyed or it's saved. It's either destroyed because of the wicked people or it's saved because of the righteous people. But everyone in the city shares the same fate, right? And that is, in fact, human reality, right, for this period. But it's not divine reality, right? It isn't divine reality. Why isn't it divine reality? Because, in fact, what does God do? What does God do after this dialogue? He saves Lot, right? He sends the, the, the men slash angels. They go and they save Lot, right? Lot is righteous or innocent and deserves to be saved. His children deserve to be saved. His sons refuse to go with him. His daughters do, right? His daughters go with him. They deserve to be saved. And in divine justice, those people can be saved. Right? Whereas in a human reality, what Avram expects is that they will all either be saved or be destroyed together. There's no way to save a person from a situation like that. That was a bit of an expansion of something that I heard from Mark Smith. So I like saying things, B'Shem Omro. They say, whoever says something in the name of the person who says it brings the Mashiach closer. So I did, I did my bit. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, so in fact, what we have here is we have this dialogue where on the one hand, Avram says it, it's just completely in a, it wrong for the judge of the earth to do injustice. And what is injustice? Injustice is destroying innocent people with wicked people. And at the same time, he stops at 10, right? He, he doesn't expect, and at the same time also, he thinks everyone's fate is, every, the city will live or die as a city. Right, the fact that God can, in fact, go ahead and save one specific family, great. Okay, but in general, the city lives or dies together, and that's something that, in fact, explains. And we're going to, uh, towards the end of this talk, look at some prophets that we can understand a little bit better, given that that's the reality. The reality in the ancient world is. If you are, and, and frankly, the reality today, in other words, if, if I'm living in a place in a, in a town in California and there's wildfires, it doesn't matter. And particularly natural disasters, like I could have had, you know, I could have been really careful and, you know, and built my house really well and da, 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 da. But if the wildfires are raging, they don't just take my neighbor's house, they take my house too. And there's a general idea that everyone, and particularly in the ancient world, a city's conquered, the entire city's conquered. People are killed, people go out into captivity, and there isn't this idea that just because I didn't do anything wrong, I am going to be saved. In fact, there isn't even this idea that if my city rebelled and I said, wait, don't rebel, it's really stupid to rebel against these people, and then they come and they smash us all, I'm also going to be smashed. But right? a wildfire yeah. or an earthquake isn't the same as a punishment, or is it? I mean, I've, well, if you're if you're talking about stuff from God, and certainly like we're used to saying, okay, that was a natural disaster. That's not from God, right? Now, I, I think in the ancient world they also could say things like that. Like I, I don't think that they would necessarily always. Like also because I think that there's much more of a gradation in belief and how people think things work than what we like to give credit for because we like to kind of just paint everyone with the same brush, right? And certainly, and this is something that you guys who have been listening to me, you know, for a while, you remember when I talked about the Watchers, this whole idea of the Watchers, and that's a second temple idea. That's not a, that's not an actual, the, what, even though they're basing themselves on a biblical story there, it's a second temple idea that you can blame these demonic spirits. You can blame all sorts of things on these demonic spirits. And what's nice about that, right? What's nice about that attitude is that you can have all sorts of natural disasters and disease and st things like that and not blame it on God. 
So there's no such thing as a collective punishment. It's just, you know, all these horrible malignant spirits. And then the problem becomes, but wait, if God's so powerful, why isn't he controlling the malignant spirits and keeping them from hurting me? But certainly there's an idea, there are ideas in the ancient world of chaos, of bad things just happening and things like that. It's not necessarily true that everyone says when there's an earthquake, oh, that's a, that's a punishment from God. But if you've got a prophet around, he's probably going to say it's a punishment from God. And, and right, let's let's face it. If you've got, if you're if you're living in biblical Israel and there's an earthquake and you've got a prophet around, what do you think the prophet's going to say? Right. So let's be real. And the fact is that when you're talking about that, on the one hand, it's clearly not acceptable. This is what's interesting is that as opposed to intergenerational punishment, which in in, in many passages is considered A-OK, collective punishment in general is not considered A-OK. It's considered problematic and it's considered the way the world works. This is what happens if you're together with a bunch of people who are who are playing with matches, the fire doesn't go around you because you didn't play with matches, right? This is what happens. People rise and fall together. Now, this is especially true when, and particularly if we're talking, look, we're talking about the Hebrew Bible. So we're talking about Israel, right? We're talking about biblical Israel, Israel before the exile, okay? Before the first exile, right? Now we're talking, when I say Israel, I mean Israel and Yehuda, Israel and Judah. So we don't know, we don't have any texts from the northern kingdom of Israel that was exiled by Assyria, right? We do have texts from the Judeans who were exiled by Babylonia later, right? And in fact, there's a shift. There's a shift in general in terms of how they think about collective punishment, okay? But let's come back to where we have collective punishment. The idea is that collective punishment is unjust, but it is the way things work, okay? So, but that's that's divine or let's say natural collective consequences, okay? That's natural, natural or divine collective consequences. What about people? What about what people do? Can people ever carry out collective punishment if it's considered so unjust? And the answer is, as we know, there are specific cases where in the Hebrew Bible, one is called upon to to punish collectively. I'm talking about punishment. I'm not talking about things like conquering. Okay, I'm talking about an actual thing, something where there's a sin and then there's a punishment or there's a crime and then there's a punishment. So let's take a look at the classic case of this, which is called irnidachat. Right, which you could say is rejected city translates maybe as rejected city, something like that. I'm reading now from Dvarim Deuteronomy Yud Gimel Yud Gimel thirteen thirteen. I'm having fun. Are you guys having fun? I- I'm enjoying just talking about this stuff. It's been a while. Anyway, so here we are, and it's in a chain of commandments talking about people who are who get very uh, severe punishments for misleading people in terms of divine worship or being false prophets, etc., and following uh, foreign gods. So we come to the story of the Irnidacha, the city which is which manages to essentially be completely overrun by idol worshippers. Okay, so we have. I'm reading again from Yod Gimel thirteen thirteen. All right, so uh, I say God's name when I say the whole verse. When you hear in one of your cities that God gave you to dwell there, saying, A bunch of scoundrels came out from among you. In other words, they're Israelite. They're, they're not foreign people who came to the city. The people from 
who are Israelites, who are Jews, who come from or from the city, and they say, and they essentially subverted the people of their city, right? And saying, Let's go and worship foreign gods. You didn't know, okay? So let's go and worship foreign gods. This is important. You should go and seek and investigate and ask really well, right? And behold, the thing is actually true. This horrible thing has been done in your midst. And you're going to kill everyone in the city. That's horrible, right? You kill everyone in the city. And what is the idea? The idea is that everyone in the city has actually gone to idol worship. And this is the rabbinic interpretation, but it also seems to be the plain meaning of the text. In other words, what are you going to see? What are you going to investigate really well? You're going to investigate really well is, is it really true this whole city is a city of idol worshipers? You go and you check. You don't just hear about it. Remember God, right? God with stone, he goes down and he checks. You must go and you must check. You must investigate. You must ask really, really well. And once you find out that, in fact, the entire city is full of idol worshipers, you destroy it because it's such a horrible thing. All right? Now, again, I really do, I think this is the plain meaning of the text. I don't think this is talking about just a group of people in the city. You're not destroying a city because of a group of people. You're destroying a city because the whole city, the whole city has been overrun by this. And you go and you don't just, you just, you don't base yourself on hearsay. You go down there and you investigate. Okay. So this is an unusual case of collective punishment and you must investigate the whole thing. And I think the reason that you're investigating so well is you must know, are there actually any innocent people there? Right? Are there any innocent people there? Because if there are innocent people, there are a group of people who are not idol worshippers, then this isn't what you do. Right? That seems to be what you're investigating. You're not just investigating if there are a few people who are who are worshiping idols there. All right. But what if? Yeah. There's a mistake that's made, or the answer is not clear. I mean, a human. Then you don't do it. That's the point. If it's not clear, you don't do collective punishment. There can still be a mistake somewhere, but. Well, th- th- that's the thing is that the point is that the point is that because there's a danger of mistake, this isn't something that you just do. You must make sure there isn't a mistake. So what happens if there's a mistake? And there we get to the story of the Pelegish Bagiv'ah, the concubine of Giv'ah or of Gibeah, right? That is a classic case of collective punishment gone horribly wrong. And what's fascinating about the concubine of Giv'ah story is that there's a horrible crime that starts it all off. And you, the reader or the audience, you know it's a horrible crime. There was, in fact, a horrible crime. But the collective punishment that is then delivered on these horrible people is wrong and sets off a chain of events and a chain of, as it were, collective punishments that almost destroys the tribe of Israel. And then the way they save the tribe of Israel is absolutely ridiculous. And against the whole thing that set it off, okay, what... For those of you who aren't familiar, if you've got little kids listening, don't 
Okay, like this is because I'm, I'm going to tell the story of concubine. Uh, and by the way, you you guys, I, when I was a kid, they used to have these after school specials against censorship, right? They'd have this thing. Oh, you have to take this book out of the school library because it says blah blah blah. And then they'd all have this like like kind of parent teacher debate thing. Like they'd have this meeting in, in the in the Lifetime movie, right? Like in the movie, you'd have after school movie. You'd have this. They're all at the school, you know, talking about it, and you have these like super crazy religious parents who are like, oh, they can't have this book in the library because it's in the school library i mean and then someone goes and they get and they tell the story of the concubine of giva and which is horrific and then they say and everyone's like shocked and horrified about this horrible story and they're like and that's in the bible and, every, and then everyone gets you know of course that just proves that you know what what are you not going to censor <laughs> so so it really is. It really is. If not, if not the most horrific, certainly it's got. It's one of the most horrific stories in the Bible. What is the story? The story is. It's actually almost the setup of it is already supposed to kind of tell you that you're in kind of a twilight zone when it comes to norms and morality because there are all sorts of basic norms that are being broken at the very beginning that we're less sensitive to because we're not used to norms of hospitality, right? So you have there's someone who has a concubine. And he goes down and she kind of, she leaves him and she's by her, his, her father. There's already, there's a problem in the whole relationship. There's a big problem in the relationship. And he goes to collect her from her father's house. And her father, now what a host does is, the host is supposed to release you in the morning. They have this word, lishaleach, right? Which can mean to send, but in its PL form, it means also to release. And if you look in the Bible, if you ever do a search, I did one of these, this is how I realized this actually, that I just happened to find that it comes in, the, it, it occurs a lot with the word morning, lishaleach baboker, to release in the morning. And the reason is because a host releases a guest in the morning, right? The fact that they're using the word release means that there is, well, on the one hand, the host has a responsibility. The host has a responsibility to take care of the guest, but then the guest must be kind of released by the host. The guest doesn't just sneak out, right? The host releases the guest. But her father acts weird. He doesn't release him. He keeps on urging him to stay and stay and stay, which is already a breaking of norms. And then... The husband, or, you know, the, yeah, the husband, the concubine, he breaks the norm even farther because he's like, forget it, I'm leaving. And that's why he leaves at night and not in the morning because he's had it and he doesn't wait till the morning when the father's supposed to release him because he keeps on not releasing him, he keeps on urging him to stay and he leaves at night. He leaves in the evening. And that's why they're stuck in the middle of the night with nowhere to go. They go to this town, right? They go to this town. It's a town that's in the area of Benjamin, and this town is filled with truly horrible people, okay? So this old guy welcomes them into his home, and it's clearly meant to be a parallel. It's kind of a parallel of the Stone story. He welcomes them into his home, and everyone starts banging on the door. They want to, to rape the guy, essentially. And so the guy who is apparently a stellar husband, pushes out the concubine. And they essentially rape her to death outside the house. He opens the door in the morning and he says, okay, baby, let's go, right? Not noticing that she is in fact dead. When he discovers that she is dead, he does something also horrible and he cuts her up into pieces. He cuts her body up into pieces. He sends her to the different tribes and he says, we need to take out the people who did this, okay? Now, what's interesting is that this is parallel to what happens later with Saul, with Shaul, 
who becomes a king, he actually calls upon the tribes to follow him by cutting up an ox. This guy cuts up his dead concubine, which is pretty disgusting. Not only that, but the story has specifically told us that he's got an extra donkey. So, so like, he totally didn't need to cut up his concubine. This is things that I noticed, like, when I read the story. It's like, why does it say he has two donkeys, right? Why is this important? Why do we care? And I really think it's because, you know, so you know, he could have cut up the donkey. Why did he cut up his dead concubine? Because there's like this total lack of morality. You're in a twilight zone morality was. And that, that's kind of supposed to be the feeling of this whole story is that you're just in this weird place where no one is acting appropriately and what they're doing is just insult to injury horrible. Okay? Like, why? So in fact, what happens is he goes, they, they have a, essentially a council. He testifies, but no one checks that what he's saying is true. No one looks into it. No one investigates. And we, the reader slash audience, know that there are inconsistencies in what he's saying. All right? We know that, in fact, a horrible thing was done. Terrible things were done to this concubine. And it's not like he was a totally innocent party because he's not a particularly moral human being. You all, we already know. But we also know, we also know that, that what he's saying, the way he's saying things happen is not exactly the way they happen. And no one investigates. Everyone gets completely up in arms, very much the way people do today when they hear something, you know, someone tweets and they're like, oh no, that's what I mean. And everyone gets really upset without investigating, without checking. Everyone gets really upset. And what's interesting is, again, we, let's say we, the readers, we know that something did happen and it was truly horrible. And these people in the city really do seem to be horrendous, right? But we also know that the way the husband presented it was not completely true. And we know that no one investigated. So they're like, we're going to wipe out the city. Again, without investigating, they decide we are going to rain down collective punishment on the city. So the tribe of Binyamin says, ha, 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 no, you aren't. They're our city. This is one of our cities. It's you against us. And in fact, the tribe of Benjamin fights very uh, valorously and courageously. But in the final analysis, this is what happens. They fight Benjamin. They manage to wipe out Giv'ah, which is this evil city. In other words, the rest of the tribes do in fact wipe out Giv'ah. But they keep on fighting. This is a war now. Now this is a civil war. But they do a classic trick that they fight them. And they pretend to fall back and then they go behind them and burn them and essentially destroy their cities. So now you have a bunch of guys from Benjamin, they're warriors, they fought bravely and their towns are destroyed. What does that mean? That means there are no women. There are no women and children because their towns have been destroyed, which is pretty awful. And not only that, but everyone had very foolishly sworn not to give their daughters to Benjamin. Because they're like, oh, they're horrible. They're all fighting us in defense of this city, which is truly horrible, right? So what's interesting is that every moral choice is actually something that we can understand. In other words, you can understand that when you hear the story of the, of the city of Giv'ah, you say they're horrible, they should be wiped out. You can understand people who say that, right? But they just, they make a split decision, they don't investigate, and they do it. You can understand, they're saying, you can understand Binyamin saying you can't just come in and wipe out our city. Right? You can understand them saying that. You can stand the other guy saying, yeah, darn well, we can come in and wipe out your city. They're horrible. All right? You can understand both sides. right? And then you can understand 
kind of what the other tribes of Israel do is say they made an oath not to give their daughters to the guys of Benjamin. Why? Because they have this horrible city, which did these terrible things, right? But that's a really stupid oath. I mean, that's, you want to see some dumb oaths, you go to the book of Judges. That's, that's a good place to find really stupid oaths. Anyway, but frankly, in the ancient, certainly in ancient Israel, the way they, they're urged to make oaths is something that's very hard for us in the modern world to understand. Like, why are you doing this? Anyway, so they're not giving their daughters. So what are these young men going to do? They need wives and they catch, the rest of the tribes catch themselves early on enough to say, we don't want to wipe out all of Benjamin. What have we done? We've almost wiped out the entire tribe. Let's, this was wrong. Okay. So what, what brilliant decision do they make? They say, no problem. We made an oath. So we can't give you our daughters. What can we do? Well, there's a festival where the young women go out and dance. So just take them. So we started with a rape, right? And we end with this idea of the whole, everyone who's like, just go and grab a woman, right? Because of a series of actions that are taken collectively without thinking and without investigating, right? This is the worst situation you can get to when you simply deliver collective punishment even when it comes out of legitimate moral outrage, this is the depths that you can get to. By the way, what the story seems to be saying is this is particularly the depths you can get to when you don't have a king, okay? Because it's all like the tribal councils that are doing these things. And I think the idea is also that these tribal councils are very easily swayed by, by kind of moral outrage. <gasps> horrible, we have to do something right now. And the idea is you have to kind of say, it sounds horrible, let's investigate and then let's decide what to do. And let's not just do a series of these actions for moral outrage where it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And more and more innocent people are suffering because of what some very wicked people did. So here we have a case of collective punishment gone drastically wrong. And what part of the lesson is, this is why you need a king, right? And part of your lesson is that you don't just deliver collective punishment on people. Right? This isn't what you do. This isn't how you behave. Even when horrible, horrible things happen, that's not what you do. And in a way, you could say even like, look at God with stone, right? Look at God with Sodom. What, is, what does God do? God saves low, right? And, and this story is very much parallel to the stone story. Uh, the old man has daughters that he offers, like the old man who's hosting, the man and his concubine, he offers his daughters to the horrible people outside who want to, you know, go raping. And it's there are a lot of a lot of these parallels that the story is setting up. So you should you are thinking absolutely of the story of the Sodom story. So here we have collective punishment gone drastically wrong. So the idea is, are there cases where people you know we have in Devarim and Deuteronomy we have a clear case where one is supposed to where where they're supposed to kind of deliver a collective punishment. Whether it ever actually happened or not, there seems to be there are certain cases that are bad enough. But the idea is one investigates to make sure that that collective punishment is in fact deserved, that everyone really is that bad. And if you don't investigate, even if some of the people really are truly horrendous, then you're in danger of creating tremendous injustice and horrible, horrible, horrible consequences. So that's human collective punishment. And then I do want to point out, let's take a step back after that pretty outrageous story. Let's take a step back. And, and talk about prophecies. In fact, if we look at biblical prophecies, right, we need to look at biblical prophecies from the first temple period that's not Yirmiyahu or Yechezkel or to a certain extent Svanya. Svanya. What we see is, or in English you call it Svanya, Zephaniah. 
It's, it's hard to connect, so that's why I'm translating it for you guys. Except for those prophets that are closer to the destruction, in general, prophets seem to expect everyone to suffer. And the idea is that you might be saved or you might not be saved just as some people, in fact, usually survive these disasters. Whether it's a natural disaster or whether it's an invading army, there are some people who survive. But you have no way of knowing if you're going to be one of them. Right. There's the classic, you know, uh, the remnant of Isaiah, of Ishayahu, right? Or in Amos, there's a kind of a, it's a, like a sit, like a sieve, right? You, some people get out, but there is no guarantee that you're going to get out because you're righteous. All right. We start seeing that in the second temple period, by the way, it is a guarantee. That's, that's why it's interesting for me coming as I do from like this. I, I mean, I've studied Hebrew Bible obviously a lot and also the second temple period and second temple period texts. Take for granted, as we frequently do today, anyone who reads religious texts, you're expecting you're a righteous person, you're gonna get out free. You get it, you you are righteous or you are innocent, you are set, right? There is not this idea. There is not this idea in most of the Hebrew prophets. Most of the biblical, most of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible do not tell it this way. What they say is bad stuff is coming. Guys, repent or we're all doomed. The prophet themselves does not think they're going to be okay. They're like, everyone is going to eat it. All right? You guys have got to repent. Now, obviously, they're talking to the wicked people, right? They're talking to the wicked people, repent, right? But what they're not saying, and what you do see in, for example, Second Temple Apocalypse is, hey, you guys are going to burn and we're going to be fine, right? That's not what you see in most in most prophets of the Hebrew Bible, you don't see that, right? This kind of idea that there's a split, there are righteous people, there are wicked people, and we righteous people are going to laugh while you wicked people burn. No, we're all, if you guys don't shape up, we're all going to burn. They're, the army's coming. The enemy army is coming. You guys have to repent, okay? And this, in fact, reflects the reality of a nation that is in its land. A nation that is in its land where it doesn't have a diaspora, quote-unquote, okay? There isn't a group in the diaspora that's very much connected to the nation in the homeland, where each thing sees themselves as part of the same nation. We have that as soon as we have certainly, and look, to be, to be honest, from the kind of homeland perspective, from the perspective of Judeans in the land of Israel, they absolutely see the nation of Israel that's been exiled, by Assyria, they absolutely see them as part of the nation. But we don't see that there's a lot of correspondence. In other words, we don't know what happened to those exiles. Once we have Judeans in Babylonia, we actually have a very connected diaspora, where we have a group of exiles that consider themselves part of the nation. People who are back in the homeland consider them part of the nation, mostly. And there's this kind of correspondence back and forth. They're part of the same nation. All of a sudden, you have this reality where what happens to one group doesn't happen to the other group. In other words, if I'm in Judea and I get attacked and you're in Babylonia, right? You are not suffering the way I'm suffering because I just got attacked, right? We're not sharing the same fate all of a sudden. All of a sudden, we're part of the same nation and we don't share the same fate. We're sharing different fates. Once you have this as part as the way you see the world, in other words, your worldview shifts. All of a sudden, you're looking at the world differently. You're like, wait a second, this happens to me, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen to my cousin, right? 
She's in Tel Aviv, which is, of course, in Babylonia. You guys know that Tel Aviv was in Babylonia, right? That's what it was. Not, not today's Tel Aviv. Today's Tel Aviv is in Israel. The place where it is is in Israel. But the original Tel Aviv, the name Tel Aviv, is where Yechezkel started his prophecy in Babylonia. So <laughs> here's my cousin, my cousin in Tel Aviv. She's in Babylonia. Something bad happened to her, and I didn't even know, right? All of a sudden, the way you start, but we're both from the same nation, we both have the same God. We both should have the same fate, quote unquote, but we don't. So all of a sudden you have this, not all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's gradual and it doesn't happen just sharply with the exile. It's already happening a little bit. But this idea that, wait a second, maybe I'm righteous and he's wicked, so he'll be destroyed and it won't happen to me because that can be, that can happen now. Now it's not the same. It isn't the same where if we're all, we're all in the same city and that's what there is and now, now bad things are going to happen or particularly we're all in the same nation and bad things are going to happen to all of us. I'll remind you that even the Assyrian exile hit everyone. It didn't just hit Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. It hit Judah. It hit Judah also. It hit Israel in the north. It hit Judah in the south. They shared the same destruction. Only Jerusalem was saved. Right? And that's when you get this idea of, of, of people who live in Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem can't be destroyed. We're safe no matter what happens to everyone else, right? Which also probably helps this kind of development of this idea that righteous people can be saved where wicked people can be destroyed in the same prophecy, right? And we're going to see that you see that more and more as you move towards Yirmiyahu and Yechezka, people who are talking about closer to the exile, Right, who on the one hand are after this experience of people in Jerusalem, where people in Jerusalem were saved while everything around them was destroyed. Everything around them was destroyed. And also this experience of there's a diaspora. There's that group of, let's call them Jews, because at this point they're Judeans, right? There's this group of Jews that are there. There's a group of Jews that are here. While we have here the same, we, we hear the same prophecies because we're, we're corresponding, but we don't really have the same fate. It's not the same. So that already creates a shift in worldview where not only is collective punishment wrong, which we had for much earlier, this idea that it, it's unjust, but this idea that that's not the way the world works anymore. It doesn't work that way anymore because what happens to me, it doesn't happen to you. I can actually predict if I'm in a different city that I'm not getting hurt, right? Or, or a foreign city, like I'm in a different land. That changes the whole view of the consequences of sin, and particularly collective consequences. So the view changed, but did the behavior of, like, how did it change the behavior, that view? Did, did it, or were I, sinners, I sinners, and righteous, righteous? Look, first of all, I think that, I mean, what I, what I want to say is, is what happens much later in the Second Temple period. In the Second Temple period, you have these kind of groups that separate themselves out from everyone. And you can do that if you think that because we're righteous, we'll be saved even when the apocalypse comes, right? And that is the idea. That's this basic idea that you have in the Second Temple period. The apocalypse comes, but we'll be saved. Well, that's the reason to separate out, right? Where you don't have that reason. You really don't have that reason before, right? Now, even Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel are not saying, let's separate, separate yourself out from the people. But it's a natural consequence. Once you start saying, I'm righteous, so I'll be fine, and you're wicked, so you're going to burn, there's a much more uh, chance that I'm not going to bother talking to the wicked person. Like, hey, buddy, you're lost. You're gone. But I'm not going to suffer. I'm going to be over there in Qumran. I'm going to be saved. So that's, that's like the, the Jews in Qumran are separating themselves out because what's going on in the temple is wrong. So they say, from their point of view, right? 
Whether it is their from their point of view, stuff in the temple, totally messed up, not pure. They separate themselves out, right? And they are sure they're gonna be good. They're gonna be fine in the end time. Everyone else, hey, they have it coming, right? It's a very different attitude than what you would have in most biblical prophecy, pretty much all biblical prophecy, where the day of the Lord. Right, the day of God. That's why Amos says, "Why are you waiting? Why are you asking? Waiting for the day of the God? It's darkness and not light. Why? Because you guys are sinners. You're all going to be destroyed. Right? Don't say we're doing fine and we're going to ask for the day of God. Now, later on in Second Temple Apocalypse, that's exactly what's going on. People are like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the apocalypse. Why? Because I'm a righteous person. Everything's going to be great for me. Right? But that happens much later. That happens in the Second Temple period. Like, even in Yechezkel, Ezekiel, that's just what I was, I was teaching the other night, where it says, you false prophets, you don't, you're not standing in the breach on the day of the Lord. In Yom Hashem, in the day of the Lord, you're not standing in the breach to, essentially, to defend the people. Why? Because the day of God is when reckoning comes. The day of God is not a great day of happiness with righteous people or blah, 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 blah. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions that Yoel likes the day of, of the Lord very much. He does. <laughs> and there is actually some, there are actually some people who think that Yoel was quite late, relatively, in terms of as, as a prophet. But the idea is the reckoning is not going to be cool for you. Right, you can't say, "Oh, I'm I'm fine." Now, part of it is that the prophets are just saying you're all sinners, right? Right, so that's why you're not going to be fine. But there also isn't this idea that you can be magically saved from what's coming to the nation, right? You don't have that idea. You do have that idea happen later in the late Second Temple period. By the time you get to the late Second Temple period, you absolutely have this idea. I'm wondering about the reverse of that too. Motivation to not sin for the collective good was that ever? I mean, I, I, to not sin to for the sake of others, or is that never uh, an issue? That would be great. I wish I knew. I mean, like prophets are urging people just not to sin, right? It doesn't seem. It seems to me like the sort of person who's sinning is not going to keep themselves from sinning for the sake of others. It's kind of by yeah. definition. <laughs> but I, it's it's actually. I mean, it's interesting. It's there's this idea, and this is this is interesting because this is the idea of everyone paying for one, and this I actually didn't mention, but maybe I'll mention it now, the classic case of Achan. So Achan, in Yoshua and Joshua, says that Achan uh, breaks the cherem. He takes some things from the city of, of Yericho, of Jericho. Everything was supposed to be in cherem. In other words, no one was supposed to take any loot from the city of Yericho when it fell from the city of Jericho, and Achan does. So the way they find out that Achan did that is that they start to lose wars. They start to lose battles. People die, okay? And people die because of this one sin of this one guy, right? Maybe not, but it was a big sin. And the idea is that he's kind of removed the protection from them because God is angry at them. And the whole point was that that first city, they're not taking the loot because they recognize that God, you know, destroyed it for them. So what they do is when Yoshua realizes that something happened, they cast lots and they find that it is Achan. Speaking of which, uh, if anyone's read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, her lottery is based on this kind of, of biblical lottery, the kind that, that showed that Achan was guilty. If you read the story, you'll know what I mean. And read the story. It's creepy, but it really is good. Um, anyway, so, so everyone's suffering because of Achan. And finally, it indicates that the lot indicates that Achan, by, by narrowing it down you know, to tribe, household, finally gets down to Achan. Right? Again, if you read Julie Jackson's lottery, you'll know more or less how it works. And then Yoshua says to Achan, my son, 
hey, Aaron, I'm going to just, Vayan, oh, it's, it's so creepy. He's, he, he, Yoshua plays kind of good cop to Achan, right? And so Yeshua says to Achan, my son, I'm just going to read it in English, my son, pay honor to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make confession to him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hold anything back from me. Achan answered Yoshua, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. I saw among the spoil a fine Shinar mantle, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them and took them. They are buried in the ground in my tent with the silver under it. And so Yoshua did this in order to find out what, in fact, Achan had done. Now, now he discovers this, and they dig out the all the stuff. And then they take Achan and his whole family and all his stuff, and they stone them. And they stone them with all their stuff, right? And they kind of stone, have this big pile of stones. So one of those not particularly pleasant stories in the Bible. And the idea is that why does Achan confess? It seems to be that the reason he confesses is because his sin is causing this collective punishment of Israel, right? Because of his sin, people are losing, they're losing battles. So when Yoshua says to him, oh, son, come clean, tell us what you did. He's like, oh, you're right, I sinned. This is what I did. Okay. Now, of course, he didn't say anything about it until he was already indicated by the lottery. Like they already know what he, that he sinned. So it could be that the reason he confessed was not really to save people, but just because he didn't have a choice. Because he knew that no matter what, they knew that it was him. So he might as well say what he did. Right. But you could say that everyone who didn't take loot, you know, there are indications like that. Anyone who didn't take loot was not taking loot so that there wouldn't be a collective punishment. Right. There's this much later on, Shaul's son, Yonatan, Saul's son, Jonathan, Shaul's son, Yonatan. He eats honey when Shaul has made an oath that say to say that no one can eat until they finish the battle. And Yonatan eats honey. And then later on, he gets indicated that he broke Shaul's oath. And he says, yes, it was me. I'm sorry. Da, da, da. And normally you would expect him to actually be killed. And he's not. Actually, everyone says, no, no, save him. Don't kill him. And that you're saved. And he's saved. Actually, it's interesting that he's saved and there doesn't seem to be any repercussions. Except I always say that's why Yonatan has to die at the end of the book of Samuel. He's got to die at the end of Shmuel because he ate the honey in the beginning. So at some point, he's got to be killed in battle. And in fact, he is. <laughs> I can only say that because I read the book, right? I know the ending, so I can say that. <laughs> but but anyway, so yeah. So you could say that anyone who isn't doing, isn't taking from the harem, you can say, well, maybe they're, they know, right? The idea is any single person breaks the harem, they can cause a kind of collective consequence. So it's like peer pressure. Well, one assumes, yeah. I mean, I, I think that... I think that a lot of these things where if anyone messes up, then it's going to cause problems for everyone. And the, that, that makes it, I mean, why does Shaul make this oath? Shaul makes the oath, by the way, he makes the oath that no one can eat until the battle is done because he doesn't want them to lose momentum, right? But why does he make this big oath that no one can eat do it? And the answer is because he's relying on the idea that no one wants to cause a loss by breaking the oath, right? So that's going to kind of force everyone to just keep fighting and not stop to eat, right? So um, anyway, and on that happy note, <laughs> I'm going to conclude. This was, uh, I think you can hear, this was fun for me. Yeah, um, yes, definitely it, heard that. <laughs> and the next talk, I'm going to continue and talk about intergenerational punishment and how the idea about that changes and shifts, not quite in, in terms of a historical shift, because we see certain books that are also from the same period that are that do are, are kind of 
for intergenerational punishment. We'll talk about why. And then other books that are against the idea of intergenerational punishment. But as opposed to collective punishment, there are absolutely places in the Hebrew Bible where intergenerational punishment is considered good. It's considered a-okay. This is a way of not wiping out a generation. This is God being patient. Okay. So we're going to talk about that in our next talk. Please leave your comments on the website, understandingsin.com. I enjoy talking to you and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Take care. Bye. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.